body that he would physically be able to get through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Sean, good morning, Northwest. It's wonderful to see you. How are you doing this morning? Are you glad to be here in the house of God? Excellent. That is wonderful. And a special uh, welcome this morning um, to anyone who's uh, broadcasting online, of course, uh, Jerry, of course, you're always in the front row uh, digitally. <clears throat> want to say uh, we love you. Welcome to the service this morning. Of course, um, we also, I just found out from my father-in-law that his nephew, Josh, actually tunes in with his family from, uh, Josh and Cindy, Cindy from Hong Kong. How cool is that? So uh, <clears throat> we are all over the place. That's, that's, that's a good thing. Usually all over the place sounds like a bad thing, but we are all over, the, all over the world right now. It's a good thing. This morning, I want to continue on the, the, the topic that we started last week in talking about walking with God. Walking with God. This morning, I specifically want to take a topic of walking with God on the mountaintop. Last week, Pastor Crystal talked about walking with God when you're downcast. And next week, uh, we should be talking about walking with God in the valleys. And when we look in the Bible and we're talking about walking with God, <clears throat> we know that walking with God um, it involves life that has ups and downs. It has peaks and valleys. It has triumphs and tragedies. But what do we mean about walking with God on the mountaintop? When we talk about mountains, mountains are both literal things and symbolic things. When we talk about mountains, they're symbolically places of power and of position. If you read in the Old Testament, oh, there was many people who met God on the mountain. Moses received the Ten Commandments on the mountain. He met with God on the mountain. Elijah was known as the, <clears throat> probably the most famous Old Testament prophet because he called down fire onto a sacrifice on top of a mountain. He saw God move and meet with him on top of a mountain. Abraham was even his testing of his faith was complete when he actually offered his son to God on top of a mountain. There's something about walking with God on top of mountain places that is very significant. Even today, there are people who go climbing Everest, right? They, they go, they love to, they love to try and uh, uh, test the metal of their worth and try and conquer a mountain. And they'll try and uh, get up the top of a, a mountain called Everest. And once they reach that mountain, something inside of them is completed. Something is fulfilled because they conquered that mountain. Who loves to climb up mountains? You like to climb up mountains? I love climbing up mountains. You know what I love more? I love driving up that mountain and getting to the top, right? I hear an, a, a holy Jesus, amen, yeah, that right? Amen, I'm with you, brother, right there in that car, right? And I love it when you get to the top of that mountain, there's a cafe there as well, so you could sit inside and just survey the view, right? Everybody loves mountains that you can drive to the top of. But, but even, even climbing mountains can sometimes be fun, I'm sure. Tell me about it when you do it, okay? But walking with God, when we're talking about walking with God, yes, we know that Jesus has come down amongst us. He's become a man like us <clears throat> and he has brought God to us. But the fact is, he came to be with us. He came as God to be amongst us, but to teach us how to walk with God the Father. The fact is, we have to learn how to walk with God the Father ourselves. We don't really know how to really do that properly. So there are things inside of us that need to change in order to learn how to walk with God. So how should we understand this challenge of walking with God on the mountaintop? 
Well, my question to you this morning is this. What mountain has God chosen to call you to? You see, we know we're meant to walk with God. We know that people in the Old Testament, even the New Testament, walk with God on the mountain. They're meant to come close to God. But there was a reason why it was a mountain. What, God, what mountain has God chosen to call you to? Well, if we're going to ask that question, then we have to understand this, that anyone who is called to walk with God is also called by God to a purpose. You see, mountains are not just for the sake of walking upwards. It's not just for the fact that you can be elevated a little higher physically, but mountains are both physical and spiritual. They're symbolic that we're meant to overcome things. We're meant to conquer things. So what is it that God has called you to overcome, to establish His presence on, to meet with Him on? It could be as simple as it's your job to actually uh, uh, to, 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 to meet with God on the mountain of your marriage. Why? Maybe you come from a marriage, you come from a family where the marriage was dysfunctional where you came from a divorced marriage. And so it's your job to learn the skills of how to found or create a proper, good, functional marriage in your present marriage for the sake of your children so your children become a holy nation because they are living off of the fruitfulness of your functional marriage. Hello. That could be the mountain that you've got to overcome. Maybe you have a mountain of, 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 uh, of, of mental things. Maybe you have come from a family that has mental problems or physical problems, and your mountain is you have to overcome that. Maybe you have a good marriage. Maybe you have good health. Maybe God is calling you into the mountain of business to establish the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven in the mountain of business or in politics or in teaching or in your job or in ministry. What is it that God is calling you to to walk with Him on that mountain? Any mountain that God calls you to is for a purpose for His kingdom. When I was growing up, there's one thing I started to fall in love with. I, I really started to get into maps. And I actually collect maps now. I'm a, I'm a nerd that way. And I love collecting maps. And I've got some antique maps in, in my house now. And I love kind of going on eBay and, and, and yeah, yeah, I, I'm a nerd, okay. And so I've got these maps. You want to come and see them sometime, come and see them. I even have this old map that's as old as 1792. And it's so cool because I'm looking at something that someone used in order to try and navigate life. You know, I'm not talking about your, your Google map. You, know, you can say you're into, into maps because you've got Google maps on your phones. You're not. That basically tells you to take a left and take a right, right? Is that right? That's the basic way. It doesn't mean you understand maps or know how to read maps. But when, the reason I got into maps is because I joined this uh, group that was called the Duke of Edinburgh Award Scheme, where they, they basically, it's like, a, it's like a character building type of thing in, uh, uh, in, uh, through the school system, et cetera. And so you have to learn a skill, you have to learn you know, like new skills in life, and you have to go to different classes, and you've got to log it in your journal, uh, how many hours you put into this, and you have, to, uh, you, know, you, have to, you have to do community service. And then one of the things that they do is they teach you how to go into the mountains and how to navigate through the mountains, some call it mountains others call it orienteering. And so what they would do is they put you into a class and then they would, they would sit you down and they would start teaching you how to read maps, how to go from point A to point B through the mountains such that you didn't die in the middle between A and B, right? 
And so you would, be, you, would, you, would, you would take it up for a day and then he would show you how to read the map. Okay, this, this part of the mountain is too steep, so don't go up that side. This part of the mountain is covered in loose rock called scree, so you don't want to go too close to that because if someone chips something off, it can send off an avalanche. Don't do that. And they're trying to teach you the dangers of actually navigating through the mountain. So we're in the classroom and then they take us up... Um, they take us up for a day trip and then we start learning how to you know, uh, 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 read the map and, and understand how to work with each other, etc. And then at the end of the year, we're all like 15 years old, and the end of the year, they took a group of eight of us and then just sent us up in the mountains for eight days and they said, we'll see you in five days time, right? What a horrible thing to do, but we absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it because they were teaching you how to survive in the mountains. That's where I got my love of reading maps and loving the mountains. But a few years ago, in ministry, I started to notice how many pastors were falling in ministry. I started to notice that there was many pastors, and I'm not just talking about in the country, just Orlando here alone. Let me mention a few things that they fell to. There were some pastors that fell to actually using drugs, addictions. Some of them fell to divorce. They left one spouse and then they got married to someone else and then they fell from grace and couldn't get back into ministry. Then they decided to leave that marriage and then moved on to something else. There was someone else who actually committed suicide. There was another pastor, there's many pastors who have gone through church splits and then they've just walked away and backed away from the faith themselves. Many pastors have gotten fired from the board because they didn't like them being a pastor. Someone else, other pastors have gotten into alcoholism and of course the perennial sin is adultery. And it began to really disturb me and, and, and depress me to some degree because I wondered if those guys who are quote unquote at the top of their game, who have grown a church and they're doing amazing things in ministry, if they can't survive being a pastor, what's the chances for me? And so sometimes what happens, if you come from a place where you have been discouraged what you've come from, and then you realize that it's your job now to try and manifest what you, the, the good things of God in your life, sometimes you can decide to back away from it because it's too much work. If you come from a dysfunctional marriage, is it really worth getting married? Because really, my parents didn't do it. I don't know the skills. It's not worth doing. You can easily get discouraged because you see other people who have failed at doing the very thing that you know that you're called to do as well. But we are still called to the same mountain. The call doesn't go away. God calling you to walk with Him on a mountain for some greater purpose other than yourself never disappears. The call is always there for you. Whether you back away, live away, or decide to try and ignore it, it doesn't disappear. It always stays there. So I got to this place where I was asking this question, what does it then take to walk with God on the mountain? And I looked back on all the things that I'd learned about walking on mountains, and I came up with four things that I think are important for us to understand of how to walk with God on the mountain. Here we go. The first one is this. Number one, <clears throat> know the mountain. Number one, know the mountain. In Exodus chapter 24, I'm going to read verse one, and then I'm going to skip to verse 12 to 18. And this is about Moses meeting God on the mountain. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, 
and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here. And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for the instruction. Now that's an important moment that happened in the history of Israel. Then Moses set out with Joshua his aid and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. As I'm reading this scripture, there's a few things that I see about understanding walking on the mountain, knowing the mountain. When you have to go navigate a mountain, the first thing they teach you is you better study that mountain before you get there. Because if you don't know what you're walking into, you're going to walk into a very dangerous environment that will eventually kill you if you take it for granted. And the first thing that I noticed right here in the scripture is that it mentions that the people saw the glory of God look like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. The mountain of God is always a consuming fire. It is always consuming. The environment is different at, top, at the top of a mountain. When you get to the top of a mountain, the air is thinner. You can't breathe as well. You have to take in more breaths and take shorter steps because it's more laborsome upon your body because the air is thinner. Food is not plentiful. There's no 7-Elevens and cafes at the top of mountains. There isn't a nice Motel 6 up there for a nice little sleepy, uh, sleep, uh, a sleepy time up there at the top. It's, 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 got, it's got rocks all over the place. It's discomfortable. It's not, it's not a nice place to actually be. And, the, and when you have a different environment, it demands that we must live differently. You see, the higher you go up the mountain in order to come closer to God, the more there is a demand upon you to live differently because your weaknesses start to show and you have to hand them over to God. And the closer you get to Him, there is a holiness that is demanded of you. Hello. You see, it's easy to walk with God from a distance and wish that He would give you His dreams and His visions. It's easy to walk for God from a distance and look at the fire at the top of the mountain and just wish that you could be close to Him and learn about Him and that you would know a purpose and you'd be able to see what He sees. But if you don't come close to Him, you're never going to hear His voice. You have to come close to Him, but as you come closer to Him, you have to accept and acknowledge the fact this is a consuming God. This is a consuming mountain. It demands holiness. If you want to get closer to God, something's going to have to die. Hello. Which takes me to the second thing. At the top of the mountain, he took 70 of the elders and a bunch of the other guys and they got like halfway up the mountain. He said, stay here. God has said, you must stay here. Don't come up any closer. And when they stopped there, it said that they started to worship. 
And when they were worshipping, worshipping is not about, you know, like the way we do it is, hey, have you got your tambourine? You got your guitar? Let's all sit around and and, and sing. Let's sing some worship songs right now. No, when they worshipped, they had to take the effort of picking up big stones and making a cairn, making like a, 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 what do you call it? (gasps) an altar, right? And then they would go and take one of their own animals, right? And they would, their own animals that cost them money, cost them time, take the animal, slaughter it, put it on the altar and then worship God. It had to cost them something. When you go up the mountain of God, if you want to come close to Him, unnecessary burdens have to be gone. What I find is, years ago I learned when I, was, when, when I, I, I began to be on stage and leading worship and and, and having the responsibility of, of, of being in a pastoral role, I realized that there was things that I could and could not do on the day before I was about to minister. Because those things would affect me and it would affect how I would feel and how I would be able to deliver what I think God had given me. So there's certain things that I don't do on a Saturday. There's certain things I don't drink. There's certain foods I don't eat. There's certain TV shows I don't watch. There's certain conversations I don't get into. There's certain places that I don't go to. Why? Because I can't afford for my spirit to be downhearted. I can't afford to be affected by those things. I must cast off unnecessary burdens. That's the price that it takes to come close to God. And the third thing I saw in this is that Moses did a very important thing. He turned to him and said, hey, I'm going up to God. By the way, if there's any disputes, take it down the mountain. Do not bring it up the mountain. Let me tell you, there's one thing that I've learned about God. I think I probably learned this the most uh, through my father, is that my father was not patient with disputes, especially amongst his children. I don't think that God is patient with disputes. See, if you've got an argument or a dispute with someone else and you bring that into the presence of God, you can be guaranteed satisfaction or your tithe money back that you're the one that's going to get rebuked because God doesn't accept your opinion about other people. He only only accepts His own judgments of other people. So if I have an opinion about someone because they didn't do something a certain way, I better get rid of that because I'm going to be rebuked for it. I can't afford for that conversation to be in my head of that dispute with another person. Let me tell you, if you've got a dispute in your heart with someone, there is a distance between you and God right now. I had this for years when, when, I, when I first came here and I was working here. And every year uh, I, I had this, you know, my dad would come over and I'd have a conversation with him. I'd say, Dad, are you ready for me to come back to Scotland and work with you? And he said, yes, son, one day. And then it would happen year after year after year after year. And then seven years later, he just ups and dies, right? And I'm like, what's up with this? We didn't agree what was going to happen with me after uh, you know, after I was working here and after year after year, you keep telling me you're going to bring me back and then you didn't bring me back. And it weighed upon me for, for quite a few years. And about five, six, seven years after that, I was driving down the road with my mom, having a conversation with her. And I it just something popped into my head and I said, mom, can I ask you an odd question? Why didn't dad ask me to come back? And she said this, She said, because he didn't want you to be burdened with his vision, he wanted you to go find your own vision. And that's when I realized not only how much my father actually loved me and sacrificed himself, but that's when I realized I had had a dispute in my heart that stopped me seeing the things that God had wanted me to do. 
I couldn't get to the place and to the vision, see the vision that God was calling me to that was maybe even greater than what my father had ever done. I was meant to stand on his shoulders. So my question to you this morning is this, what disputes do you still have in your heart from your father, from your mother, from your family, from your friends, from your brothers or your sisters. You have to find a way to take them down, get rid of them, leave them behind, and then come up to the presence of the Father. Can I hear an amen? amen. <clears throat> number two. The second thing that I've learned, number two, is to know your place. Know your place. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28, Jesus had been ministering to a crowd of people and then he decided to go off with a few of his guys up a mountain. It says about eight days after Jesus said this, this teaching to this crowd of people, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. This was just before he was about to go to the cross. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. <clears throat> While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. When the trainers are taking you up into the mountains, there are two rules that they always remind you of as you now step foot onto the mountain. Two rules. The first one is this. Don't run ahead. And the second one is know your limits. <clears throat> Don't run ahead and know your limits. Don't run ahead, why? It's easy when you're actually climbing a mountain to go ahead and try and conquer it as fast as you can. The glory is at the top of the mountain, but it's easy to be distracted to capture and preserve it as quickly as you can, to come up with a plan of action and then make it happen and get there as soon as you can. But many people die because they push too hard to win to get to the top. I remember listening to a guy, a guy called Ed Viesters, who was the first American who had actually scaled, I think he was the first American who had scaled Mount Everest without any oxygen. And he said this, he said, there are the, most of the people who die on the mountain are the ones that are pushing too hard to get there. And instead of knowing what their limits are and saying, you know what, I think I need to back off. Maybe we should back away. He said there was a story once where he, you know, he said it takes about two years to plan to get to Everest. And then once you get into the country, it's about a three-month period to get all your stuff together. 
all your resources, to get your teams together, to get all the way to the top of the mountain, and even, sorry, at the, at the base of the mountain, but even when you get to the base of the mountain, it can take about two weeks to get up there and get back down again. It takes a lot of effort and time to actually scale Mount Everest. And he said there was one time when he was doing it and he was 200 feet within the summit of Everest. And he said the weather was so bad, they had to decide to back away and go away. Why? He said, because if we pushed on, we would die. We had to know that we had reached the limit and we could not push ahead because we were going to not only kill ourselves, but kill everybody else on our team. It's important that as we are climbing and going closer to God, that we know how to not run ahead and know what our limit is. This is where I think that maybe pastors have fallen. Pastors have fallen because they have gone past what their limit is. They haven't acknowledged this is my limit and I can't afford to put too much pressure on it because I have to come off this mountain. See, going up the mountain is optional, but coming off is mandatory. If you die on the mountain, you're never going to do this ever again. I remember a, a friend of mine, in fact, you, you remember him, Pastor Ted from Canada, and uh, I was speaking with him once about uh, another pastor friend that we have. And this guy is a really large fellow, right? His teaching ability is quite amazing. He's, he, his ability to, to expound the scriptures is really quite amazing. And I remember speaking to Pastor Ted once and I said, Pastor Ted, you know the amazing thing about this other pastor is that he has the ability to teach about discipleship, but he can't discipline his own eating habits. This is one of the largest fellows I've ever seen and he is teaching us about discipline and he can't discipline his own eating habits. And Pastor Ted said something to me and it was more of a rebuke, but he didn't realize, I don't think he meant it as a rebuke, but it was a rebuke to me and he said, he wears his sin on his sleeve. The question is, where do you hide yours? Amen. And that's really, that really showed me up for where my lack of wisdom was. That just because we know we're meant to conquer the mountain and we think we've become disciplined, it doesn't mean you don't have weaknesses somewhere. It doesn't mean you don't have something that's gonna be an Achilles heel that could trip you up. The best thing you could ever do is to acknowledge that very thing because every human being I've ever come across has some Achilles heel. When I look in the Bible, I see that Noah became a drunk after he built the ark and the flood was over. Abraham, after he actually accomplished proving his faith to God, deceived other people about who his wife was. Moses lost his temper and killed people. Aaron became jealous of Moses and built the golden calf. Joshua became presumptive of how, what his strength was to overcome Jericho, that in the next city he failed and hundreds of men died. David became so full of his own magnanimity of his kingdom that he fell to lust in Bathsheba. Jonah was disobedient. Elijah after he called down fire from heaven went into depression. Peter thought he would conquer the world and he fell to denial and pride. And John the Baptist, Jesus' best friend, gave up because he was offended that Jesus left him in prison. You see, so many people have come and gone over the years who have tried to walk with God and they have fallen to some weakness in themselves. What you have to acknowledge is that you have a weakness somewhere. 
You have something inside of yourself that could make you stumble and fall. You have to know your limit. And more than that, know the voice of God as God said to Peter, listen to my son. Listen to what he says because he knows your limit and he won't push you past it. Listen, are you frustrated about not achieving your dreams and your goals? Maybe it's God's grace that you've not succeeded. Maybe it's God's grace that you didn't get to go up the mountain a little bit higher. Passion must be patient or it'll become poisonous to your life. It will kill you. Passion is wonderful and great. I'm focused, I've got vision, I've got a strategy, I've got a fast passion, I know what to do, I'm gonna make it happen. Wait a second, listen to the son. Is he saying stay or go? Is he saying come or back away? Listen to the son. That's why when people ask me, what do you think God's telling me to do? I'll go, I ain't telling you, I haven't got a clue. It's your job. You go spend time with Jesus and find out what he wants you to do. Find out what your limit is and let him show where your weaknesses are. Here's the third thing that I learned in climbing mountains. You have to know the limits of others. 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Every year we try and, as a family, we try and go over to Scotland and see my family over in Scotland and, <clears throat> and spend time over there. And a few years ago, um, Crystal started looking into her ancestry. You know, you've been to ancestry.com. It's kind of cool. And she knew that her great-grandmother actually came over on one of the boats, I believe, or her great-great-grandmother came on, on the boat from Norway. So they emigrated, and we found out that they came from a little village just outside of Stavanger. And, and we thought it would be kind of neat. Hey, how cool would it be to actually go there? And as she went and dug in and around on, on her ancestry, etc., she found that, hey, you guys just came back from Norway, didn't you? It's kind of cool, isn't it? Really expensive, but hey, cool place, right? <clears throat> so we went, went over there and she found, the, she found a photograph of the actual pier that they disembarked from on, onto the boat to come over to America. And we're like, well, what's, what would be the best, most millennial thing to do than to actually go there, right? And then take a selfie of ourselves on the actual pier. That's the best way to honor your ancestors, right? Okay, so we went all the way over there. And as we were there, you know, we kind of traveled around, saw this, took pictures. It was kind of fun. And there was a place in Norway that I really wanted to go see. And it's this place called Prekestolen. It's this magnificent rock that just juts out the side of a fjord up there. Look how big that thing is. Of course, that's the, for perspective, that's a couple sitting there looking like they're not gonna slide down the side of that mountain, right? But all those little dots on that rock are actually people on top of the rock. I mean, it's, it's absolutely magnificent view. And I thought, hey, Crystal, this will be fantastic. Let's, let's, let's take a ride and go up there. So we hired this tiny car that's like the size of a clown car and we all squeezed in it and we found our way all the way up this mountain and we got to the bottom of the mountain, right? And then we looked at the map and it said it's four kilometers to this spot. And I'm like, we can do this because that's the type of guy I am, right? We can do this. Yes, I know I've got a nine-year-old son and I've got a six-year-old girl, but I think we can do this. I'm a good faja. We can save our children. We won't let them die here, right? So 
So we started climbing up this mountain, and the mountain was pretty precarious, right? It was really dangerous. I mean, look at the side of that mountain, right? Okay, okay, right, okay. So that's not really the mountain, but I thought I'd show you how scary that one was so that the next one didn't make me look like a bad father, right? So this is my daughter on the side of the mountain, right? Right, so, there's, so this is how steep the mountain was. You have all these rocks, you've got to climb up, and you go up one side, and then you go down the other, and then you go up one side, and you go up down the other. So it wasn't as dangerous as the other one, so I'm not a horrible father, right? So this is Rowan uh, waiting to get up this mountain, and she, she has no clue how hard this is going to be. So we, get, we, 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 we do about, about two hours you know, climbing, etc., And we get halfway, it's two kilometers, you know, and you're halfway going, okay, so we're nearly there. I think we can make it, right? As soon as you go into high-pitched noise, that's when you know you're in trouble, right? I think we can make it. So, so I said, um, I said, and you could see it right in the distance. It was glorious, it was gorgeous. And I said, you know, maybe, what do you think? You think we can make this? I mean, it's only two more kilometers. Now remember, two more kilometers and then four back. So I'm looking at this going, I think, I think we can make it. And, she, and then Crystal goes, I don't think we should do it. You know, we've got our kids, I don't think we should push it too hard. So I said, well, 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 well let's think about it. Let's, let's just sit around and we'll just think about it. We'll catch our breath to see, you know, we could get it before our sun goes down. We could do it. And in my mind, I'm convincing myself, I think we can do it. And she goes, no, I don't think we should push it anymore. And I'm like, darn it. I knew she was right, but so I just suppressed those emotions and those feelings and I went, okay, you know, I bow down to your wisdom, let's do this, right? And then I got this genius idea. I said, why don't you press on and go see it? Hmm? Huh? 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 If all of us are going to come this far, you should at least go see it yourself. It's magnificent, it's glorious. And she goes, well, I'm fine. <laughs> You're, you can't be fine. You can't be, you, it's just right there. Look, it's not too far. And listen, I know I'm not a horrible husband. You won't die because I know there's other people on the path. So if you do die, someone will tell me, right? So don't worry about it. You should make it. And she's, no, no, I don't. I've, I've seen enough. I'm good. I'm fine. And I'm thinking, I've just flown you 3,000 miles on three different planes. I've, I've spent thousands of miles. We've, we've, we've driven hundreds of miles. We've gone into a tiny clown car. We've been in the smallest hotel room and we get within just a few steps of getting there. And you're fine with this? I wasn't fine with this. I wanted her to go see the glory that I had drugged everybody off, drugged, dragged everybody off. <laughs> Take this. I'm just going up there. You won't feel any pain. It's just a small walk. So, so I dragged her up, drugged her up all the way up the mountain. And we get there and she said, she's fine. So we tell me, okay, that's fine. I'll, I'll give in to your great wisdom. So we start walking down the mountain and Kale started to complain about a sore leg. So we stopped and I checked it and there was nothing. You twist your ankle, nothing, nothing, nothing. So as we were going down, he kept on just complaining about that his leg hurt. You know, and of course, I'm giving them this, this very fatherly advice of suck it up and let's get off this mountain. We don't have time to hang around. We've got to get down. And I'm sorry, son, that you've got lots of pain, but we need to get off this mountain. We can't stay here. No. Yes. Okay, let's go. And then we would go. But as we got to the bottom of the mountain, he said something that really sparked a thought in my mind. And he said, I think I'm having a growing pain. And that's where I think that God spoke to me and showed me that it's important that even though you have the vision, the focus and the desire and the energy to conquer a mountain, you must remember that you cannot do this at the price of your children. 
Because even though they might have the capacity to get up there and get back down again, there might be a season that they're in where they are transitioning into something else. They're physically transitioning. They're emotionally transitioning. They're going through puberty. They're going through a time in their life and they just need their dad in their life right now. They just need their mom to be here right now. I don't need you to be conquering your mountain. Even though God called you to that mountain, I need you to just be my dad here today. Later on, I looked up the word prekestolen, and the word prekestolen actually means preacher's pulpit. If that wasn't a very expensive lesson, I don't know what was. But I know that God was showing me this. Don't expend your children's life just because I called you to the top of the mountain. Wait. Listen to the one who will guide you up that mountain and teach you how to walk with me. It's important that we know our own limits and the limits of others. Here's the last thing. We have to know how to come down this mountain. Ed Viester said this, most people have a plan for going up the mountain, but they don't have one for coming down. Climbing to the summit is optional, but coming down the mountain is mandatory. It's important we understand this because even though it's dangerous going up the mountain, it's more dangerous coming down because if you trip and fall up a mountain, you fall onto the mountain. But if you trip and fall because you've lost energy, you have become so discouraged, you've become so distracted, you have lost your senses, if you trip coming down the mountain, that's how you can stumble and fall to your death to your spiritual death, to your death of your own walk with God. I've seen it happen. I've seen people go through this because they've been so focused on achieving the things that they want to achieve, on changing their marriage, on building a ministry, on becoming wealthy and doing what they want to do. And then when it doesn't work the way they want it to work, then they go into a depth of depression and then ask themselves, God, where are you? And they walk away from their faith with God. Listen, God was always in the same place, but we cannot be rushing around. We have to learn how to plan to go up, and once we do something great, plan how to come down. Just because you do a great charitable work, a great ministry, or a great job, or make a great sale, know how to come down, because the enemy is waiting halfway down, and he'll take a season off while you do your conquering, and then he'll step in right at the moment when he knows you're weakest and just wait to see if he can trip you up. You have to have a plan for coming down that mountain. So after the few years ago when I had I'd been thinking about <clears throat> what I do with all these pastors that have fallen, how do I survive? There's this one last scripture that I want to show you that I believe is a scripture that is a navigation for life. In fact, most theologians believe that this scripture sums up the entire Old Testament and it's this. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. You see, the thing is, in order to walk humbly with God, you do have to act justly because God is a just God. To be in His presence, to be in His world, you have to act justly. You cannot afford to have disputes. You cannot afford to be wavering on burdens. You cannot afford to see what's right, what's bad, what's good, what's holy, what's not holy. You have to act justly and do what is right. But as soon as you come down into that, off that mountain and come into the world of the humans, you have to love mercy. 
Why? Because those humans don't act justly. People don't act justly. They don't act properly. They don't do things right. And if you come down with a dispute and an argument and you demand justice with them, you'll kill them. The only person that's meant to die in this whole equation is you. Because God's call is for a greater purpose than you. It's for the kingdom of God to be here on earth as it is in heaven. His great plan is to win everybody back to him so he can have what he first originally made in the beginning of time. Your job is to learn how to walk with him, come closer to him, so you can at first become who you're meant to become. Secondly, lead your children, your family in the way they're meant to go. And thirdly, be an example for other people to know how to walk the same mountain. Father, we ask this morning that you would show us how to walk with you. Forgive us, Father, for walking with presumption on the mountain too closely to you sometimes. We thought we've got what it takes. We know how to do it. And the fact is, we didn't know what our Achilles heel was. Father, we are asking that you would reveal to us this week what the weakness is that we probably already know. But show us, Father, how to submit that thing to you to be satisfied, to sit on the side of the mountain and wait. You see, as Peter was pushing on to try and build uh, 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 shelters over Moses and Elijah and Jesus, the God the Father said, wait, because someday he would plant churches. Someday he would build shelters for the body of Christ. Someday he would do these things, but this day he had to wait on the Master. How is God teaching you to wait? Just take a few moments right now as you wait upon the Lord. Father, speak to us. Father, help us to take ourselves to the place where there is no signal of anything else. We can't pick up the signals of other people's chatter or even our own thoughts, but we're forced to be alone with you, to spend time with you, to hear your still small voice, to know that the Father has spoken to us. Father, I pray you would speak to us clearly as we start listening to you. And this week, in our small groups, I want you to ask these three questions. What's the mountain you are called to? What is the weakness or the limit that is on your mountain? And how do you listen to Jesus every day? And as you discuss those things and talk them out, expect Him to show you the answers. May God bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Have a great day.
see my hand in front of me. 